Everybody and welcome back to another episode of 30 Flirty and Surviving. It is your host, Tracy. We This episode's going to come out a little bit later than when I'm recording it. So I say now that we just announced, but by the time you guys hear this, it will probably be old news. But... We just announced our first live podcast. I'm so excited about it. I hope that you guys are going to be able to make it. The tickets are on Ticketmaster. I have them linked in my bio on 30 Flirty Surviving on Instagram. Um, and it's going to be Wednesday, April 5th at 7 p.m. Doors open, 7.30 show starts. Mingling, networking, some fun and games. It's going to be a blast. I cannot wait to meet you all in person. In the meantime, as always, new episodes drop every Monday at 9 a.m. on Apple, iHeart, and Spotify, and check out some new clips on YouTube as well. Today, I have with me a PR guru maven expert. She has come from the world of entertainment PR. She's done everything behind the scenes when it comes to creative and helping out with photo studios and production. And then she has come all the way back here to the East Coast after being in New York, California, to open up an agency of her own. Robin, the CEO and founder of Wave Collective, which you guys may have heard of, is joining me today. So without further ado, let me introduce you, Robin. Hi. Hello. I'm so impressed that you just had that all memorized. <laughs> um, I did have it memorized, but in, if you didn't notice, I froze because I never asked you how to say your last name. Oh, that happens So will you tell everybody your last name so they know? Yes, Robin Mangano. Oh. Um, it is... Quite a few people. It's so weird to me. It just, I naturally knew how to, I feel like, say it. It's my husband's last name. Um, But... Yes, you are not the only person that has uh, hesitated on how to pronounce it. I'm just, I'm just always so afraid of like saying it so completely wrong. But it is sounded out, and it's it, it's it's exactly <laughs> how it's spelled, Tracy. But I just get, I guess I'm on the spot, and I felt nervous. So thank you for that. No worries. Robin is also the founder of her own retail company called the Golden Cod, mm-hmm. which we'll dive into a little bit later. Later. On socials, though, we can find you at We Are Wave Collective. Yeah, We Are Wave Collective, The Golden Cod, and then my personal Instagram, which is Robin Mangano. Perfect. And then websites are wearewavecollective.com and shop the golden cod, yes, correct? Yes. Okay, perfect. I always like to try to say those in the upfront. Sometimes I forget, but now you guys can kind of play along. I like they have a visual as they're listening, and sometimes that's fun. I would love if you wouldn't mind to just really quickly not like a full background because we're gonna get to that in a second, but just before we move on, a quick elevator pitch of what Wave Collective is for everybody at home if they haven't heard of it. So we are a full-service communications agency where we focus on uh, public relations, social media, creative, and influencer marketing. And when we work with clients, um, we work with other, we work with them on either one of those services or all of those services. 
uh, but we're based here in Boston. There's 14 of us, and we absolutely love what we do. Wow. I love that it's a one-stop shop. Mm -hmm. That must be so convenient for your clients. It's actually what I think a lot of our clients love is that when when you work in a marketing department for a a brand or a restaurant or whatever the business is, I feel like you're always trying to figure out how to work with more streamlined vendors. Mm -hmm. And so instead of going out and having to hire a social media agency, a PR agency, having to go find a photographer for all your content, and then also hiring someone to do influencer marketing, if you can have one agency do all of that, it's a lot easier. And again, I think it just streamlines the messaging and it just makes things a lot easier, faster, and I think they find a lot of value in it. 100%. Especially like anything that's really like copy or messaging related, even look and feel. It's just, you don't want it to feel broken and all split up. And it's really an advantage, I think, on both ends for you guys to be able to just sort of have that creative control of the vision for all elements. But I would imagine, I don't normally talk about cost, but I would imagine being able to get it all in one, they're going to save money because they're they're not paying a premium here and a premium there and premium there. Like they're going to pay you guys for everything yep. and just make it easier. So it's Absolutely. kind of a no brainer. Yeah. And again, like the communication between our divisions, the PR team will secure a media placement for the client and then we'll send it to the social team and say, hey, we suggest uh, scheduling this into the social media calendar. At the same time, the social team in a week or so will say, hey, we need new creative assets for social. So they'll go to the creative team and say, hey, can we schedule a photo shoot? The PR team will kind of raise their hand and be like, all right, really excited that we have a photo shoot coming up. Here are some of the photos that we need for some more media outreach. And it just all works really well together. Instead of having to go outside of the company to contact their social media specialist or having to go and hire a photographer um, that maybe we haven't worked with before or who has a really busy schedule, it's a lot easier just to go within our inner circle at Wave. I love it. Last thing on this, and then we'll start getting into the the juicy Q and A. But one other advantage I was just going to say is like turnaround time for yeah. that. You know, rather than having to get your creative or your content from one agency, then pass it off to your PR team in order mm -hmm. to start pitching. You guys, you get it in real time and yeah. get things out there much faster. Which honestly is huge, mm -hmm. huge. Time is money, people. No, absolutely. I mean, if we secure a really big media placement for a client and they need a photo, it's very easy for us to go to our creative team. And if we don't have that photo, we can send them to go get the photo because the last thing we want is to lose an opportunity because we didn't have the creative to go with it. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, same with social. I think our clients really value the turnaround time with social everything has to be so almost like present in the moment it's almost like you don't want your followers to know you have an agency doing this work for you they would almost feel like uh, it's someone in-house that's constantly posting things in real time so we always have to be thoughtful about how can we turn around our content creation um, in a quick enough way where we're still providing really quality content so that our social though can feel like they are on top of trends on top of pop culture and they can just again like I said turn around social posts much quicker. Yeah. yeah I don't really 
use TikTok other than mm-hmm. for putting episode clips. But I remember when it first came out, I was like, I'm going to do this more. I think it'll help. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people are using this this platform now. And I would save a sound, whatever that was trending. And then by the time I would get around to actually trying to record <laughs> anything, it'd be on to the next. So yeah. I can appreciate how important it is to have things be out there and published at an appropriate time and at a quick turnaround time. Yeah, TikTok is hard, actually. Um, With TikTok, you basically have to hop on a trend if you want to be at, like, the forefront of the trend, probably within, like, 48 to 72 hours Mm -hmm. of it going viral. And then I think you have, at that point, maybe, like, a week before you seem like a little antiquated on yeah. TikTok. And that's that's pretty nuts that you have to like turn around a concept that makes sense for your brand, tie it into a trend and be able to do that within just a few days. And I think what's actually so unique about that is the people on your team that then are overseeing TikTok, they have to be so creative, can really think on their feet really fast And then on top of that, it's the job of the company to be able to trust their social team to be able to turn around that video that quickly without it not having to go through like 10 rounds of approval. Yes. If you as a brand have to do that, honestly, TikTok probably isn't going to be the best for you because it's all about turning around content that fits and aligns with what's going viral at the moment. Yeah. And the other thing you have to think about too is... I feel like there's, it's just like a lion's den on there Mm -hmm. in terms of people are very sensitive to repetitive content Mm -hmm. or potentially stolen content. You know, like there's these certain trends where there's a handful, I think, of concepts Mm -hmm. that come to mind right off the bat. So it's not wild to imagine that you and I are both going to post a similar Mm -hmm. video, but yet if people saw yours first, like they'll be so quick to attack me. Like as if I went to your page, copied you intentionally, saw it was doing well Mm -hmm. and did it on my own. There's, there's like no room for that on TikTok, which is kind of alarming. I'm like, listen, I get it. We all want to have unique and original (laughs) creative ideas, but sometimes People can be like-minded and it's not malicious, but it's scary. I agree. I, agree. I think that people do get bad feedback, but I think the longer that you are on TikTok and the more you use it, I think I'm a little bit more forgiving now that I understand how the platform works and how viral videos work. And yes, it is likely that you're going to see someone doing something really similar but I, I mean, I just think what's so interesting is everyone's take on a trend. Mm. Like you'll see a food brand do their spin on a viral trend. Then you'll see like the Empire State Building yeah. do it. And I just think that's so unique and creates like actually a really fun community that, again, it's almost like you want to be part of those trends and give your perspective on it and do it either in like a fun or a serious way. Um, but it's it's one of the reasons why I do really love TikTok. I have one last question and then we really need to move into it. But I'm curious, talking about how this is sort of the new Instagram Mm -hmm. and it's taken a a lot of people away from Mm -hmm. from Instagram, then hearing 
there's some caution or concern around the platform mm-hmm. and its security. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you're mitigating as an agency when it comes to recommending whether or not your clients should be on the app? I would say it's all dependent on the brand. I don't know. We don't we don't dive into that that much. I think we just don't know enough, but the clients that we work with are mainly in like the food space, the fashion space, hospitality. And I don't know, I don't think they're really like concerned mm. about that. I think if I had a client that was more of like a government official yeah. um, or a nonprofit, I would probably be a little bit more cautious and and probably do some more research to see, okay, does this make sense for them? Um, but I think when it comes to more like lifestyle consumer hospitality fun influencer type of counts i don't know personally i i would just probably do it until someone told me not to (laughs) (laughs) yeah fair my dad always is is yelling at me he's like tracy they're gonna steal your identity you're gonna have no money in your bank account stop using that app but i'm like you know what Okay, so far, Dad. Yeah, I think I'm good, but yes. I I might regret that later. We'll see. We'll yes. see. Yes. But anyway, let's start getting into just basic get to know you mm-hmm. questions. My first question that I always like to ask everybody is, "Where are you born and raised?" I was born and raised in Fairfield, Connecticut, so about three hours from here and about an hour outside of New York City. And right now, you live in the South Shore, correct? Yes, I do. Perfect. What is your age, if you don't mind saying? I am 34. I have to like actually think about that all the time. I forget. Um, But yes, I am 34 years old. I know. It's so funny. I feel like 23 was the number that I just stuck for a while and I was 23 for years and I just haven't moved past 30 in my head. There's, it's just funny. It's not, it's not intentional. I'm not trying to lie about my age, but you just, you get stuck and sometimes you do forget. I absolutely always forget. I have a daughter and I am exactly 30 years older than her. And so when I forget my age, I'm like, okay, how old is she? And then I'm like, okay. That's a good trick. (laughs) That's a good trick. (laughs) I actually do the same thing. My dad is 30 years older than me. So whenever I have to think about my parents' birthdays, I'm always like 30 years behind me. Okay, perfect. So I have the same formula. Same formula. Yes. Your zodiac sign. I am a Libra. (gasps) Love that. I don't know you if don't that's know, good or bad. <laughs> you're like, I researched before coming yes. on this podcast just to find out what I am. Did you really? No. no. I, I knew. I knew. I, I know kind of like the like the qualities around someone who's the Libra, which I actually think is like very aligned with myself. Um, I've obviously well, like know. looked at my husband's zodiac sign, but... I mean, I know some people are so into it, which mm-hmm. I think is really cool. I just, I just know my sign. You got too much going on. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> zodiacs and astrology yes. is not at the at the top of the priority list. Yes. Relationship status: your husband, yes. obviously, yep. you, and you have a daughter. Yep. And if they're watching either a clip <laughs> of this on YouTube or they see you on social media. You got a bun in the oven, too. Yes. Congratulations. So we're very excited. Thank you. Do you know the gender? Yes, we're having a boy. (gasps) One of each. Yep. Awesome. My daughter is very excited to be a big sister. 
I thought you were going to say she's very excited for her brother, which I was going to say was unusual, but yeah, I'm took, glad she's took, excited to have him. some time. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, most, most I think, girls feel that yes. way, but yeah. she's going to fall in love with him as soon as he's here. And then I always ask a little fun question that's unrelated mm-hmm. to the typical episode. Mm-hmm. And I honestly feel like the God of guests was looking down <laughs> upon me on this day because never has it ever been a more perfect time to have a PR expert with yeah. me as Vanderpump Rules mm-hmm. is coming crashing down to the ground. Yep. I have watched since day one. I'm a huge fan <laughs> And for anyone who is listening and you don't know, I I can't explain it. We do not have the time, but I I feel like the, the real ones will get it. The real ones know. If you don't, all I need to do is Google Scandaval, mm-hmm. and everything that you need to know will come up. But I'm so curious. The, the highlight is essentially whole drama went down. This girl who was at the thick of the drama hired a crisis PR team. Mm-hmm. The PR strategy got leaked, mm-hmm. and now they dropped her. Mm-hmm. Yes. I am watching this. I cannot get enough of it. I'm curious if if Rachel, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Raquel, was your <laughs> client, what would you do in this type of situation? I mean, she absolutely has to go on a redemption apology oh, tour right? eventually. Well, there's a few things that I think are that I would have done very differently. I I <laughs> not cheated. Um, well, not yeah. slept with your best friend's boyfriend of nine years. That yeah. too, but I think as a publicist, um, and I mean, I'm sure the crisis communication team had a very good reason for why they dropped her as a client so quickly. I haven't watched the show in years, but I'm very familiar with the show, the concept, Tom, because I think Tom was like an original cast member. He's been on for a really long time. I think taking it to him, I mean, his apology came so fast and it didn't even address the, the other women. I think it was geared towards his business. And that to me was a massive red flag and it showed no remorse. So he's already kind of, if I was a fan of him, I'd be done. Like that was his chance to really redeem himself, put together a really thoughtful message, apologize and figure out how to take those next steps to for forgiveness. And he didn't do that. So that to me, I was like, man, okay. Nail coffin. Yep, exactly. (laughs) I don't know much about Rachel or Raquel. (laughs) (laughs) She will solely be referred to as Rachel on this podcast. But I do know that I mean, the timeline I've seen and everything that went into it is very, very messy. But again, if I put my PR hat on, and this is kind of what I try to tell people when they're looking at these scenarios. Again, this is not kind of what I would tell the client to do or not do, but almost as like a viewer or a fan. Realizing that this is a reality show, I would guess that... The circumstances that have taken place, why I don't think they were contrived and on purpose, you have to think at the end of the day, it's going to drive a lot of views to the next season. Um, 1,000%. Ratings are going to go up. Now they're household names if they weren't before. It might not help their brand and image right now, but I mean, a woman who I didn't even know existed a few days ago because I don't watch the show, I 
have seen all over my social media, so I know who she is now. There's a term like not all press is. I think what is it like? Not good all press, press is good. Not all press is good press, or all press. I don't know. I, I think it's all press is good yes, press. Yes, all right? press is good press. So in her mind, you know, in a few months or honestly in a few weeks when the news cycles have gone through, if she has taken some of those next steps that her her team has suggested, like a apology, apology tour, you know, maybe being silent on social for a little bit, um, not being involved with, with Tom, you know, all of these things can help her build a better brand image eventually. But at the end of the day, as a fan, as a viewer, as me, I have to realize like, okay, this is a TV show mm-hmm. that's playing out on social media. Always just think, is this real or is this for the show? I mean, I'm sure some parts of it are real. I don't know. I I think that the at its core, what we're hearing is true. Yes. I just think to your point, maybe some of the details have been fabricated. At first, you know, it was, she had a black eye, she punched Mm -hmm. her in the face. Today it came out that that was part of the reason why her crisis PR team dropped her was because there was no black eye. Mm -hmm. So they were like, there's some lying there. So I don't know if that was made up from Rachel initially Mm -hmm. or if people just take stuff and run with it. You know, maybe they saw them yelling in the club and then the game of telephone turns into, it Mm -hmm. was a physical altercation. So I will agree with you there. However, there, I mean, where there's smoke, there's fire. This is coming from something. Absolutely. But again, at the end of the day, when I look at like a piece of drama like this, that is how those people stay relevant. That's how they continue to get new contracts on each season every year. That's how they get more... Um, screen time during their shows is to fuel drama during the off season or during the season that then helps promote the next season. And so it's hard for me sometimes to like take that mindset or that like cap off yeah, and then like look at what's going on. So I know that's not really like what would my strategy be, (laughs) but it was what my initial thoughts were. All right. Thank you for bringing me back (laughs) down to reality instead of down to reality TV. I appreciate it. Um, Which I think now that we're talking about sort of, Mm -hmm. well, although minor um, celebrities, Mm -hmm. it's a perfect segue to kind of talk about where you got started with your PR Mm -hmm. career. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as I said in the intro, you were in entertainment industry PR, correct? Yes. So um, why don't you go to the beginning and tell everybody a little bit of how how you got your start in this space? Yep. I'll give the SparkNotes version. Perfect. But... When I graduated college, I thought I wanted to go into broadcast TV and quickly segued into realizing I could take all of the skills that I had learned in college and through my internships and f- go into a career in, in public relations. Not that they're the same at all, but there was a lot of interchangeable skill sets um, and just understandings of how the industry worked. So once I got out of college, this was like back in the day when like you would look for jobs on Craigslist. Yeah. So I was looking for jobs on Craigslist, and one day I get a call uh, from a publicist saying, hey, we want you to come in for an interview. Um, 
you know, at the time I didn't really ask that many questions. I was like, sure, I'll come in. And I just kind of walked in blind and it ended up being one of the NBC studios um, in Stanford, Connecticut. And in the moment was like, okay, I am a little bit shook right now. Yeah. Um, and I ended up doing the interview. I ended up getting the job. I became a junior publicist for several different TV shows, um, TV hosts, um, one of them being Judge Judy, uh, Jerry Springer, Steve Wilkos, Maury. So fun. It was a very... Talk about reality TV not being reality TV. <laughs> I think that's why I'm so jaded. <laughs> I was going to say, we found the root of the problem right here. I think that is why I'm so jaded. Because we would honestly create drama on set, and then yeah. we would distribute it to the media. I can, like One time we had... Real Housewives of New York and New Jersey, mm-hmm. they came to the studio. But basically, like, we kind of had to come up with a story and then feed it to Perez Hilton and the New York Post. Yeah. And it just, again, it drives ratings. It drives interest in the show. That's not all we would do, but it was an aspect of it. And Totally. Um, Especially when you're trying to tap into a different sort of demographic. Something like that is a perfect opportunity to be able to open the door Mm -hmm. to, you know, people that normally wouldn't watch your show, but all, you know, watch Bravo and Real Housewives. Well, I'm going to check out this episode. That was entertaining. Okay, next time I see this on TV, I might tune in Mm -hmm. because it was fun, even if it's not somebody that I know. Absolutely. So I started my career there. Um, It was wild. I mean, it was can imagine. so entertaining. I learned so much. Um, at the same time, this was back in like massive, like hustle culture, like at the, at the work, at the workplace. And so, I mean, I don't, I know each industry is different, but like there'd be nights where we would have to stay until like 10 or 11 o'clock because, or at night, because the episode hadn't finished taping yet. And, uh, to me, I didn't even like realize that I was going into a job that wasn't a traditional nine to five. I was completely fine with it because I was so obsessed and passionate about the work I was doing. Um, or like there'd be days where we would have to be in New York at 5 a.m. to uh, go on one of the local news stations to promote the show. And so I was living in Connecticut where the studio was. And so if we had to be there at five, that means that I had to leave Connecticut by like 3.45 in the morning to then get there in time to meet the client there to make sure they had coffee. And if that was on a day where we had a late taping, it was like 3.30 a.m. to 10 p.m. at night. And thank God, like I had the energy and the stamina at that time because that that was crazy. But over time, um, it over time, it made me really kind of question what I wanted to do with my career. I loved it, but I didn't know if it was the only thing out there for me. And so I'd always been very passionate about photography. Um, I think the reason why I loved my job was I loved the behind the scenes production of the show. I would like, I we had an office at the studio, but I would always go onto the set and like watch the show from behind the scenes and like see what they were doing and become like super friendly with like the cameraman and you know, the PAs and it just, I loved the environment of it. Um, so I ended up leaving that job, moving to New York City, and I had a friend put me in touch with um, a studio that 
uh, was producing photos. It was a commercial photo studio in New York City, and they were looking for a studio assistant, basically someone that would do everything from like tell the models what studio to go to, ordering the lunch for the entire like studio staff that was there, to having to go and pick up flowers in the flower district if we needed it for a prop, or honestly, it could have been anything. Yeah. Literally anything that I was like the just you need something done, like, go ask Robin. Like, she'll go do it. <laughs> and, again, that was so fun. But day one, I had no clue what I was walking into. Yeah. I go in. I go do my interview. I'm, like, looking around. I'm, like, this is cool. I would love this. Next day, they're, like, okay, you got the job. I show up to the job. And they're, like, great. So we are shooting Ralph Lauren on Studio 678. Uh, we're shooting Jessica Simpson on Studio 9. And I'm, like... What is going on right now? <laughs> the I, It's just mind-blowing. There are people that apply to jobs like this every day. They mm-hmm. sit there and they just throw their resume out mm-hmm. and can't get a callback or even a thanks for applying but no thanks. And you're not even realizing what you're stumbling into. And you have this immediate exposure. I mean, that's really luck. But it also... Isn't at the same time because I feel like with your work ethic mm-hmm. brought you to those places at that time. And that's what those types of companies, agencies, brands, what have you are looking for. You know, I think about that often is is the success that someone has. Is it due to luck or is it due to um, just circumstantial? Is it due to relationships? Is it due to work ethic? I think it's a mix of a, a lot of those things, Agreed. but I do think luck comes into is factored in so often, but it's then taking that opportunity and figuring out then how to accomplish it. Like I could have I was lucky to get that interview, but I think it was my interview and my passion for wanting to be a studio assistant and to learn and I want to learn more about photography that then got me the job. Right. Luck's not going to keep you there. It was luck that I stumbled across this Craigslist job posting um, to be a junior publicist at the NBC studio, but it was my consistency. And I remember actually he said the, the, my boss who had hired me at the time told me, he was like, you are the most persistent candidate that we had. He was like, that is like the number one thing we needed from a publicist. And the fact that you did that in your interview is why we hired you. And so again, it's like taking luck and then like making something out of it. And I feel like that is what has driven most of my career, which then kind of brings me to other things over time. So eventually um, I was at that studio for two years so much fun. Loved it. I would have honestly stayed there, and I think I would have tried to build a career there if I if I stayed in New York City. But at the time, I kind of just had, like, this wanderlust. I was young, and I was like, you know what? I'm moving to California. And so my husband, who was at my, my boyfriend at the time, we packed up all our things, went to California. I did not have a job. I was like, I'll figure it out when I get there. Um, and we got there. I ended up finding a job. Um, I actually worked at a music agency um, as a PR assistant and uh, agent assistant. So we would book DJs um, and bands, which was cool. But this is where luck comes in. So 
they at the music agency knew that I had an interest in um, media and PR, that I had a background in it. So one of their DJs had gotten booked for a TV segment at one of the local stations. And they're like, Robin, why don't you go? Like, you've done this before. You know how to do it. Great. I'll go. I go there. And as I'm there, there happened to be another man there who was with one of his clients who owned a PR agency. And we start chatting. I tell him kind of my background. Next day, I I go and look at his website. I see there's a job opening. I apply to it and I get it. But I like felt like it was like so lucky that that day I just happened to be at yeah. the TV station. And again, it was like seeing what was in front of me and then taking the opportunity to try to get that job. And so totally. that rolled into getting the job there, which was a, a, a full service PR and social media agency. That's kind of where my background then started to evolve into restaurant and hospitality clients which then eventually when I left California and came back to Boston, I worked at another agency here, very similar clients, restaurant, hospitality mm. clients. Um, and then that led to, to starting Wave. But that was kind of like the full circle of um, New York yeah. to San Diego and I think to here. That paints a good picture of how you've touched all these separate areas mm-hmm. and sort of why it, it makes sense for you to have an agency that handles mm-hmm. all of these yep. um, different types of, of content or media, what have you. And I do, I mean, like, it's luck, it's fate, mm-hmm. but also, you know, someone else could have been put in that same exact situation and not taken it that step further to make conversation, to network. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's a good reminder, especially for us in New England, because we always get a bad rap for being a little harsh <laughs> and we always look down our phones. We're not saying hello. We're not smiling on the yep. streets. You know, that, w- that would have been a complete missed opportunity if you just heads down, I'm, I'm here to do my job and nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. And you really just made the most of that opportunity. You realized, I'm lucky to be here you know, what's the worst that could happen if I spark a a little conversation here and meet some people? Because you never know, Mm -hmm. and especially in this industry, in this space. I do, again, agree with you. I think all these things, relationships, luck, everything Mm -hmm. matters, but relationships are huge because they may make a comment about how wonderful you are, which is luck, but it's based on your relation. Like, mm-hmm. they're just so intertwined. Absolutely. You know, it's so intertwined. And I'm sure, you know, there's been opportunities presented in, in front of me that, again, in hindsight, I would have seen as, like, lucky if I had mm. then accomplished what that was. And I'm sure I, there was, like, I had a bad day or, you know, I just didn't feel social or I kind of was like, you know what, I can't do this. So there could have been many opportunities that have flown by me that I'll never know about. Right. But I do really think that there's like an intersection that helps with the success and the growth of your career. Absolutely. Um, And what I think I really love most about your story, and you haven't quite gotten it to yet, (laughs) but I think we'll we'll be able to get into it now, but... um, over the course of time in your, you know, and then travel from Connecticut to New York to California and then back to the East Coast, you were starting to pick up on the whole idea of influencer marketing mm-hmm. before it was a true staple or pillar for a lot of agencies. And it was something that you were like, hey, you know, mm-hmm. I think you might want to try this. Hey, I think we should look into this. And you just really had that foresight to to know what 
what needs were going to be, how this space may change. And even if no one necessarily took you up on it at the time, you kept it in your back pocket. And then eventually when the time was right and you were ready, you came to this realization, if no one else is going to do it, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it. I love that you stuck to your guns. I love that you really stood your ground and believed in that and you proved that it was right. Mm -hmm. But what was that like for you during those moments when you were like not getting the traction or feedback on it that you would have hoped and then actually making the breakaway Mm -hmm. to start your own business? So when I knew that it was going to be this world of influencer marketing was going to be really big, I have this very clear memory of we had a restaurant that was opening and we invited media to come and experience it and write about it. And then about a few weeks later, we invited influencers to come in. And I remember my client either calling or emailing and saying the amount of reservations that we just got from that influencer posting about our our restaurant We've never seen that before. Mm. And I was just sitting there. I was like, wow, this is crazy. When at a time that a restaurant would be so thrilled about a media placement in the Boston Globe, which they still are, um, or Boston Magazine or some of these other outlets, to then have a influencer, I think it, I think it was Boston Foodies, um, who was posting about your restaurant and was driving that many reservations I was shocked and Mm. I got really excited about it because it was really nice to see kind of like the ROI that we were providing for our clients, almost like in real time. It was like proving that what we were doing was right and it was, you know, helping them as a business. They would get excited about it. So over time, I became ultra obsessed with influencers, bloggers. I mean, early on, people kind of rolled their eyes at influencers and bloggers, but I mean, look at the industry now. I mean, I still think there's a lot of bad eggs in the industry. But back then, um, it was so new. We really had to educate our clients a lot and educate the people that I was working with. And so I really wanted to go all in on influencer marketing. Um, and I I didn't feel like where I was in my career was prioritizing it. Mm. And so... One day, you know, I was just sitting there thinking like, man, you know, I think that I need to take this risk. I need to take this next step. I know how to do PR. Um, I This was back during when social media was usually done by your publicist as well. So I was doing social media <laughs> as well. And then I really wanted to dive into influencer marketing. And so that's how Wave started was um, – Basically taking that model of being full service with PR, social, influencer marketing, and content creation and weaving them all together. Uh, And I I found that to be really successful um, and our clients were really happy with it. And that kind of has now guided the how Wave has grown over the past few years is like sticking to those four pillars. Definitely. I'm trying to think. So Wave was started in 2016, correct? Yes. Yep. But when you first got the idea of influencer marketing and, you know, you really stood behind it, 
I mean, was there Instagram stories? Was there analytics? And, and like, I guess to the, a lot of these companies' credits, there wasn't as much of the hard data and metrics to support. It was sort of a trust and believe mm-hmm. type of thing. It's it's come so far now. But yeah, you, I, I kind of forgot that like, Instagram didn't come out with Instagram stories right away. There weren't um, analytics to show how many people are saving or, you know, clicking the link in your bio and doing this and doing that. I don't even Mm -hmm. know if there was a link in bio. No, there wasn't. It's come come a long way, but because of people like you who understood the power in it without having to necessarily see the hard numbers, you know, Mm -hmm. the reservations speaks for itself. Well, what it was is, you're right, there was no analytics, there's no Instagram stories. It was Facebook, Instagram, or a blog, or a Mm -hmm. newsletter. So those were the four things. I would say what we would focus on is actually what you're not really supposed to focus on now. It was vanity numbers. So how many followers they had and how many likes they were getting on their posts and how many comments. And we could create, um, or we would do the math on the engagement rates um, and... And at least with blogs, you could see how many visitors you were getting to True. your blog. And Facebook, the vanity number was how many people liked the Facebook page. And then again, we would look at likes and comments. So everything was public knowledge that you could see as a user on the platform. Everything changed drastically when Instagram uh, finally rolled out analytics. Um, and then you were able to see like impressions, reach, like audience breakdown that was huge but yeah from you know the very beginning early stages we had to make decisions on whether to work with influencers based on those vanity numbers and it actually was kind of difficult because you had people buying followers you had people buying likes you had to like really do some research into trying to figure out who was authentic and who wasn't You know, like if someone posted on Instagram and within five minutes it got 300 likes and let's say they had a thousand followers, you were like a little skeptical and I would go and click and see who the accounts were that liked it. User one, two, nine, six, seven, eight, ten. So that was a red flag. Um, But those were things that you had to do to ensure that you were working with influencers that had authentic following and authentic engagement. Totally. A Uh, lot of trial and error at first. Absolutely. Over time, you know, there are definitely tools that help marketers to be able to like weed out who um, are those bad eggs. Um, But it took some time to get there. So we would have to do things very manually. Definitely. And, you know, the advantage for for these companies is so much of influencer marketing, not quite anymore, but mm-hmm. in that time period, was earned or organic, too. Yes. So the risk and the cost was very, very low. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times do you have a grumpy customer where you end up having to comp their steak dinner just so they shut up mm-hmm. and don't leave a bad Yelp review or, like, don't make a scene? Yep. You know, things like that happen all the time. So how much food are you giving away for free already? You have an influencer come in. And you comp her meal, she posts about it, has a lovely time, and that actually brings in new business mm-hmm. for you yep. where that, you know, those comps don't always really go a long way. What, your reservation's a little bit late for seating you, so we'll buy a round of drinks. Like, we yep. do all those things all the time mm-hmm. in hospitality. Yep. And so think of 
ways that you do what you're already doing, but then use it to your advantage. Absolutely. I felt, and what you're saying is true, early days, it wasn't as risky because you're right. Mm -hmm. Everything was earned. It was really rare that we would be paying influencers to post. Um, I feel like once brands started to pay influencers, that's when those platforms that tracked analytics became very, very important. Because you're right, you know, early on, you could be a beverage brand and you could send your product to an influencer and they would post and trade for the product. And if it didn't really go anywhere, you as a brand are like, okay, that cost us a few bucks, you know. Right. Might no as- love lost. Exactly. But once brands are starting to pay influencers like a thousand two thousand five thousand ten thousand dollars you better believe that they're expecting some results um and so that's where everything just became way more high stakes and uh i mean you couldn't be like as risky with who you were working with you really had to do your due diligence and figure out who is the right partner if my client is willing to spend this money right i mean now you have five paid contracts Mm -hmm. with what messaging and copy or mm-hmm. keywords you need to use, what exactly the picture should look like, where the product should be placed. If, you know, if there is a physical product, there's down to every last detail and oh, rightfully yeah. so, rightfully so. I mean, it's even more than that now. It's, you know, thinking about exclusivity that mm-hmm. you can't work with a brand, a competing brand of ours for, let's say, three to six months. Yeah. Um, who owns the content? Is it the influencer or is it the brand? Um, how will the brand be able to use the content? Um, can they use it and repost it on their Instagram in an organic fashion? Or are they allowed to use that content now and do an entire paid ad campaign around it? Um, what happens if someone wants to terminate? indemnification like oh, the my blood is on, boiling it goes on and on. just <laughs> thinking about how many poor poor influencers mm-hmm. have signed contracts where they're giving rights for perpetuity yep oh my god that breaks my heart but you did like that wasn't talked about they didn't know yes. there was no conversation about that in the beginning but i'm sure you advise all of your influencers <laughs> now not to sign any contracts that say they can have the rights for perpetuity because that is the craziest thing i know craziest I, I really so i didn't mention this before we do influencer marketing at wave but we also manage influencers as well mm-hmm. um and so we see a lot of contracts that come in And I very much appreciate it when a brand sends a contract and you're right. It says we as the brand will license your image, your name, your likeness for three months. Um, But then you'll see some brands that try to squeeze in the we will own the content in perpetuity. You are transferring all rights to your content, your image to us. And every time we have to ask for redline requests and to change it. Because it's almost like they're trying to like pull a fast one and it's just unfortunate because then we have to go back and it takes longer to then, you know, finish up the deal because we now we have to go back and forth and and change the language or negotiate the fees. Um, so it's surprising to me that they're even still trying because, no, exactly. you know what I mean? Yes. I think at this point, there's very few people mm-hmm. who would accept those terms. 
I hope, but honestly, that's where I think some influencers get preyed on when they're so new to the industry. Um, They're so eager to do partnerships. It could be a brand that they're so excited to work with and they'll just get the contract, skim through it and just sign it. And honestly, because they are thrilled to be working with this brand, not realizing that there is potential, not always, but there is a potential that they'll get taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say this, influencers do the same for brands. You have influencers who've been in this space for a really long time, and you'll have brands who are just dipping their toes in the influencer marketing, and they don't understand how much they should be paying. They don't understand just kind of like how a, a partnership works and what they can ask for and the deliverables and what's fair. Um, and so I feel for both sides. That's very true. Yes. Very, very true. Because there there are equations that are used to calculate how much your content is worth and mm-hmm. how much you should be paid. They're, although the numbers can be steep, they're not arbitrary. Yep. And I think that companies that are just getting into this you know, you hear these big numbers, mm-hmm. someone could say, you know, $6,000 for a post and they might just accept it because that seems to be right. But yep. really that influencer, their stats don't equal exactly. a $6,000 post. Exactly. And so I think both sides um, have arguments to say that, are not arguments, kind of moving backwards. I think both sides have things that they should educate themselves on so that they know when they go into a relationship with a brand or an influencer that everyone feels like they're getting a fair deal. 100%. And you know, I think now's that time. Mm-hmm. The more that we talk about it, the more transparency there is. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can, you know, you guys want the same thing. You want to be paid. You want your company to be successful. Let's all work mm-hmm. together here yep. and just kind of sort of lower that that fourth wall yep. a little bit. And honestly, like, okay, I'll give you an example from today. We were looking at some of the terms for one of the influencers that we manage. Mm-hmm. And the brand put in their contract that they would get 30 days usage for the content. And based on the fee, I said to my colleague, you know, I feel like that's like actually a little unfair to the brand. Like let's maybe be a little bit more lenient with them because then that might then entice them to want to do a another partnership or a long-term ambassadorship. Yes. And so we kind of tried to think, you know, let's be fair to the brand. They're paying this fee. Let's not be stingy. Let's not re- let's not restrict it to 30 days. Let's at least offer them 60 to 90. Um Yeah. Right, so, that builds the trust, the relationship. Yes. So next go around, they're going to remember that and that influencer is going to be top of mind yes. because they realize you, you know, you're trustworthy. You stuck mm-hmm. your neck out for them to make sure that they were taken care of and you care about your relationship with yep. them. So when they have a need, that's the type of person that they're going to want representing their company. Absolutely. One million percent. Another example is if one of our influencers is doing a brand partnership and let's say they post an Instagram story and I don't know, maybe Instagram's algorithm that day is just super shitty. We'll often talk to our influencers and say, like, your stats, like, weren't normal that day. They're a lot lower. Why don't we do a make good post again so that the brand feels like they got totally something out of this relationship so that next quarter when they're putting their budget together and they're trying to figure out who to work with, they're going to remember that on that day that Instagram stat went, stats went down they did a 
make good Instagram posts to make sure that the campaign was successful. So again, trust, relationships, and making sure that you feel like you're a good partner. Absolutely. I, this might be, since I feel like you're very, you, it's because you're a Libra and you're the scale. <laughs> so you see both sides. Yes. Um, you're very diplomatic. <laughs> but I'm curious, you know, because you do, you represent your clients and you represent influencers. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of audiences, viewers, people that engage in social media have felt their own frustrations from time to time Mm -hmm. when it comes to the amount of sponsorships and paid ads that we're seeing Mm -hmm. online. And you always know, I would think most of the time we know Mm -hmm. what is genuine and what is not. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that whether I can decipher it or not doesn't really matter. It's the volume and how many sponsorships I think someone's putting out there that will determine whether or not I want to continue following along because I don't want things always being thrown in my face. Sometimes I'm just following because I like your personality Mm -hmm. and I don't want to always feel like I'm being sold on something. Yes. If you could, I know this might be a hard question for you to try to answer, but for people who have a hard time, because I've heard I've had many friends as well that bought these shoes because somebody said it, or this makeup product because they saw an ad for it, and then they're constantly disappointed. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there are some surefire signs or ways to determine? And and there, there are oftentimes too where there's a sponsorship where they love the product. Sometimes they post about it and then the company reaches out and then they work together. Mm-hmm. So a sponsorship doesn't always mean that it's not real. But are there ways to determine how genuine the post actually is versus it was just an effort for a paycheck from the influencer? Yes. So I think if you're following an influencer and you're – being influenced by them and buying products. If you're watching their content and they post something that is so left field, like if if it's, a, let's say, a fitness influencer and they're constantly posting about, like, their favorite workout outfits, like running shoes, yoga mats, water bottles that they like to use, and then all of a sudden they post about Comcast Infinity. <laughs> you're like what? Yeah. This feels really off brand. And that's where you pause and you think, okay, is this something that is a paycheck for the influencer? Or do we think that they actually use this service? That is where I think influencers lose their influence and their authenticity and they lose their followers when they do that. At the end of the day, they always have to think about, we actually do this when we put together like social media strategies. What are the pillars of your storytelling as an influencer? Um, And if you skew outside of that, if you skew outside of those pillars, it becomes very apparent to your followers and they, and they start to lose trust in you. And so I don't know if that answers the question, but... Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect way. I think for me, it's, yeah, if this is something where I can't make the connection, yes. the dots ain't done, or 
if there's, especially in a video or in caption, where it's a lot of, mm, like, almost like calculated language. Mm -hmm. Like, I love herbal lessons because it is non-sulfate, 17 different scents. My hair is like, you know, I feel like they, I don't know how to, I'm trying to think of something on the spot, but like, you know, like there's things with, when they list ingredients off, it happens a lot of time on podcasts when you have sponsored ads on podcasts where it's like, I love my bloom nutrition greens because it's gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan. Like, you know, that influencer isn't any of those things. So why do they matter to her? Well, that's because the brand is asking her to say them because they're trying to attract and appeal to those types of audiences. So I think watching like the vocabulary and how it's positioned or pitched in the content mm-hmm. is also a sure fire way. Well, I would believe that if that influencer or podcast host often talks about being vegan or, you know, wanting uh, dairy alternatives, then to me, them talking about a product like Bloom and that being the copy in their ad would make sense to me. Totally. But you're right. If all of a sudden you have an influencer who's never spoken about being vegan before, has never spoken about non-dairy products, has never talked about supplements, and then all of a sudden they're telling you to buy this product, I mean, it's just going to go over my head. Right. Or in one ear, not the other. I'm just going to be like, I know that they're being paid to post. Um And that's just not going to influence me to buy. But that's on the brand as well. You know, the brand Mm -hmm. has to find the right partners. One thousand percent. It's it's true. There's I think there's honus on on either side and responsibility on either side. Um, I have a fun. Well, not I don't know. Think it'll be fun. But I have a question for you. I'm curious. When you really decided to make the decision to start Wave, the PR world can be a little bit cutthroat. What were some of the reactions from former agencies you worked with, maybe, you know, bosses, colleagues? What what responses were you met with when mm-hmm. you started your own? Were you looked at as a competitor? Were they happy for you? So I, <laughs> I kind of laugh sometimes when I look back at when I started Wave because – I was very young, not very young, but I think I was, I think I just turned 28 and not to say that's very young, but at the time I, trying to think how to say this right, at the time I thought I was way more experienced (laughs) than what I was and um, which then resulted in a lot of testing, learning, making mistakes, having to figure out how to resolve those mistakes. So I never regret starting my company at that age because it almost like forced me to like fast track figuring it out if I wanted to be successful. Um, I would guarantee you there was a lot of side-eyeing from other industry agency owners in this market um, who are probably like, why is Robin starting her own agency? But at the same time, there were some agencies that like we would not be here today if it wasn't for them. They were so supportive of us. I love to hear that. And I will give them a shout out, All Heart PR. They referred us so much business. They were a, they are, I don't know what size their company is now, but they were a two-woman team. 
And like they just would refer us tons of business and it helped our company grow like so quickly. Again, I don't, I don't want to say like we were lucky, but, <laughs> but we were Coming back full circle. <laughs> But I was, it was, there's so much. No, like, they could have referred any yes. other agency. There's a reason yes. why they referred yours. Yes. And I have so much like gratitude for that mm-hmm. because I felt like it, I felt supported from other business owners in Boston that felt comfortable referring us business. And that really helped, again, drive the growth of the company. Um, and so, yes. When we launched, do I absolutely think people behind the scenes were like, what is Robin doing? Yes. But then it was balanced by the people that were very supportive, that I had worked with before. They knew we had a good work ethic. We, I, This is the imposter syndrome thing. That's, I think, the start of my answer to this question was <laughs> the imposter syndrome coming out is at the time, like, it just helped with confidence when someone is supportive of you and what you're doing and are like, okay, you can do this. It's going to be really effing hard, but you will be able to do this. Mm-hmm. See, I kind of think it's the perfect time to have started it because I do think there's something to be said about, obviously, too green, it's probably going to flop. Mm-hmm. But if you wait too long, you almost know too much. Mm-hmm. In a sense where it all of a sudden becomes a a little bit more suffocating, the idea of trying to take on such a large Mm -hmm. endeavor, you know, you know what goes into it. So you know what you're going to need to do. And that feels intimidating and scary. So that's you're in that sweet spot of like, I have experience. I do know what I'm doing. Do I know it all quite yet? No. But you had, there wasn't, you couldn't fall back on plan B and you just, you know, dip. This mm-hmm. is your company, right? So you had to figure it out. So you have this nice balance of, I I know what I'm talking about. I, I can garner the interest of new clients and sort of win the business. And then when the time comes to execute, I will figure it out mm-hmm. and I I will not rest until I do. No, that's so true, and I'm glad that you brought that up. It was almost like I didn't know what to fear. I didn't know mm-hmm. what to be scared of because I I didn't know the journey that was going to come ahead. And so it was almost like every obstacle that came up, I was like, all right, I guess this is something that I just have to learn. Yeah. And it was like little things like how to set up payroll <laughs> or <laughs> um, how to find uh, how, how do I do health insurance benefits for employees or how do I put a proposal together? Mm. You know, I had worked in house at agencies. I had no clue how to put a proposal together. I had no clue how to politely poke a client that, you know, <laughs> wasn't paying on time. And, but these are all things that were learned that you're, you're absolutely right. That I think that, if I had maybe been a few years older, I would have been a little bit more knowledgeable about what goes into an agency or just owning and building a business. And maybe I would have been too scared. Yeah. So. So it all happened exactly <laughs> when it was supposed to. Yes. Exactly when it was supposed to. Um, but then you didn't stop. Mm-mm. You started your own agency, your own company, your CEO, you're the founder, and you decided, I'm going to open up a retail company <laughs> instead. 
or as well. I shouldn't yes. say instead. Yes. Um, will you tell us a little bit about what the Golden Cot is? Yes. Um, very short story. I was visiting my aunt. She lived in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and I had just seen these like golden uh, wood carved codfish over all of these houses. And I was like, what is this? This is so weird. Like, why do people have this? You're like, I'm kind of scared, kind of intrigued. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> I, I was very intrigued. I had this like unhealthy obsession with like just New England and history. I sat down with her when I got to her house. I was like, what is this? And so she like literally explained to me like the history of New England and how it was all centered on this fish and this fishing industry. And it built the entire commerce of Massachusetts and then spread through New England. And as a publicist, as a social strategist, I thought that story was so cool. And I was doing some Googling and I was like, wow, why is there not a brand that's like centered around this story yeah. that is so like uh, it's such a big part of how why New England is what it is today. And so I kind of took a look at what my strengths were at my agency. I was like, OK, if we start a brand, we could do our own PR. We could do our own content creation. We could do our own social. I can have my team help with like influencer outreach. I already do this for so many other brands like I should just do this for myself. Yeah. Obviously, we couldn't do all of that. We hired a really amazing agency called Fair Folk who built out all of our branding. Um, I am not a jewelry designer. We So we sell apparel and jewelry. I connected with a jewelry designer in Rhode Island who helps design alongside myself all of our jewelry, and she helps manufacture it in Providence. Okay. Um, and then I worked with a local company uh, for all of our apparel and, and printing. Um, but all the marketing goes through wave. And so it almost like it was almost like it was too easy, not too easy, but it just made sense right. that we would launch a brand and then use my own agency to then promote it and market it. And then at the same time, I had an Instagram account that was growing as well, and I basically was like, well, I might as well tap into my own audience to see if they'll support the Golden Cod. And so, again, it just made sense. And it was a it was a storytelling around a brand that really excited me and I thought would excite others as well. Absolutely. And what I love about this is it relates sort of back to the theme where you should always be investing into what fuels your passion and things that are sort of for you as well as what you're doing in your traditional or typical nine to five professional life. Mm -hmm. And when you and I chatted previously, we talked a lot about this. And you're, I know you're a huge advocate for building and, and spending time dedicated to your your personal brand. Mm -hmm. um, why is it so important to have, you know, both? And what is the trick to that and juggling the two? Well, I think when you focus even just a little bit of time on your own personal branding, you're investing in yourself and you're helping your own career path or just relationship circle that you're able mm -hmm. to create from doing that. I mean, and there's so many ways you can do it. It's you can build your personal brand through LinkedIn and, you know, share really thoughtful and insightful 
knowledge and tips from the industry you're in, or you can um, do it on Instagram by, again, finding what you're passionate about. You can build your own website that's a visual component of your resume. I just think that, like, there's nothing that will hurt you by focusing on building your personal brand. All it will do is introduce you to new people. It will elevate your kind of the perception of your expertise and what you're doing. Um, And it just helps with your growth over time. And so I highly, highly, highly suggest people um, invest in that in themselves. And it's not expensive. Like literally LinkedIn is free and you can build your personal brand through LinkedIn. Same with TikTok, same with Instagram. Um, I know I realize that not every industry makes sense for someone to really go all in on that, but, um, but there's a lot of industries that it does make sense. Absolutely. And I've talked about this before on the show. It doesn't have to be expensive, of course, mm-hmm. um, but it could also be a second source of, of income mm-hmm. for you, which is really the goal to have multiple streams of revenue yes. and not coming just from one place, especially a you know, market like we're seeing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing a lot of, of layoffs and um, there isn't that job security or stability like we've seen in years past. So when you have multiple things going on and something that could potentially bring in some money for you, mm-hmm. it gives you that, I think, a little bit of a safety net, a little bit of a cushion. Yep. How do you feel, though, I think a lot of times their personal brand tends to be something to do with, you know, social media. Um, We see a lot of influencers starting off in the corporate nine to five. And then one year in, two year in, you see they've quit their day job and they're doing influencer marketing full time. Mm -hmm. Is that a move that you suggest or how do you how would you recommend yeah. they handle having their personal brand with their their full-time job so i never want to tell people like this is the path that they should take like i don't think everything is linear linear i think everyone I don't want to say like you can or cannot do this, but I do think there is so much value. And if you're building a following on social that you try to stay at your full-time job for as long as you can to be able to have like that foundation, your like basically finance foundation, mm-hmm. um, because it allows you to then to be as creative as you can and want to be on your social channels because you're not dependent on the income from your social. I can tell so fast when someone has quit their day job <laughs> beca- and, and start to become an influencer full-time. You can see the shift in content so quickly. You can tell that they start to do more sponsored posts you can see a difference in the relatability of some of their content um, because before they were doing it before work, after work, on the weekends, like during their lunch break, you know, whatever it may be. And you really felt like you could connect with them. Like I take a look at someone like Alex Earl. Mm -hmm. She is taking off 
and or has taken off. She has a massive following. And I love that she's still in college and that she didn't drop out. Yeah, she's still taking videos of herself in class, going to her like sorority parties. I mean, she's in her messy dorm room with her roommates. That's why people love her. But imagine how unrelatable she would be if the moment she started going viral, she dropped out of college. Then she's just— 1,000% because I think it's very clear she comes from some sort of money, right? And I think that if she had done that, instantly the narrative would have been changed Mm to must be nice to have mommy and daddy's money and like, oh, another white rich girl is just playing around with her phone all day Mm -hmm. and thinks she's famous, right? Like, because people turn on you real quick, yes, real quick. Um, But I I do, I I think the idea of her being this like regular college Mm -hmm. student is the draw and the appeal. Absolutely. And so take that, And now bring it to your professional life. And I find you way more relatable if I see you with this amazing Instagram account or TikTok account that I follow because I love you, your content, your personality, what you're sharing. It's it's either informative, it's funny, it's educational, um, you know, whatever it may be. And then to be able to do that with your full-time job at the same time, like why wouldn't you want to incomes coming in. Mm-hmm. But this is where I will say, I think you do get to a point where you're like, okay, I can fully invest in my social media channels because I'm now making more money doing this than at my other job. Of course. I think when you get to that point though, you almost have to then have multiple revenue streams set up Again, so you don't become completely dependent on brand partnerships. So what does that mean? It's um, having an affiliate business where anytime you promote something and someone clicks the link and they buy it, you get a commission. Um, It's your brand partnerships. It's maybe starting your own uh, brand or product line and Mm -hmm. making money through that business. You could you know, sell sponsorships through your blog. You could start a podcast and sell sponsorships on your podcast. Um, And so that's what I would say is like the most important part is once you decide or realize that you're making more money as an influencer than you are at your full-time job and that is hindering you from making more money, it's just making sure you diversify where you're making your money because – if one day, all of a sudden, like during the pandemic, um, brands just all stopped and paused their partnerships because they they just didn't know what to do. You know, like all their marketing budgets got put on hold. The influencers that had really strong affiliate um, businesses still were thriving. Yeah, And so that's the thing is like you're not solely dependent on one Thing. I think that's yeah. where the risk comes in. And, you know, brands, they don't always pay on time, yes. right? Or, yeah, maybe there was an issue with your phone and you couldn't post, so you're delaying when you're going to receive payment. 
anyone who's ever worked in a position where you know you get commission, you also have to take into consideration there are going to be months where you make $1,000 and then there are going to be months where you make $7,000, right? And so you have to get that $8,000 out of two months to get you through three or four months, you know, or whatever it is, right? But it's not always going to be consistent. You're not always going to make the same amount of money. So when you do get those bigger paychecks, not relying on that, oh, wow, I had a really great month. I'm all set. You've got to keep up that same momentum Mm -hmm. in order to make sure that you're going to have, you know, pretty much an even income throughout the entirety of the year. Yes. So I think long story short, I think that I always recommend go as long as you can and keep your full-time job and your side hustle. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you do decide to invest all of your time into your side hustle that has now may become like your main hustle, just make sure you diversify it so that, again, you're not reliant on just brand partnerships or just affiliate. You have more control over your life financially. And you, you just said it. Sometimes brands don't pay on time. And if you were really dependent on that brand partnership or that company to pay you within net 30 or net 60, and now it's 120 days, I would be sweating. <laughs> yeah, I just sweat in buckets, <laughs> yes. man. Um, okay, uh, same idea, but a little bit different. If there are people who have potentially been recently laid off and they've had a little bit of their personal brand going and now they're like, you know what, maybe it's a time to lean into it. You know, for just, you know, theoretically speaking, maybe they're going to apply to a corporate job again. Maybe they're not. But right now they're, while I have the downtime, while I have the availability, I'm going to keep focusing on my social media platforms and see how I can help grow these channels. What are just like top level quick things that people can do when it comes to growth and and increasing their engagement, I guess? So I think if you have all of this downtime, one, making sure you're taking advantage of it. You're never going to have that much downtime ever again um, once you get back into the working space. So really being strategic with your time and your time management and thinking, okay, how do I create this piece of content? Can I use it on different platforms? Can I post it on TikTok, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts? Um, can I re- can I create a blog post that goes along with it? Can I then do Instagram stories? It's just getting into this like content marketing mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, I think then being really strategic about, again, what your storytelling pillars are. You can't post about everything because then you're not you're not going to have like a niche enough audience um and brands actually really like having influencer partners that are just like a little niche you know like they uh like if you're a fitness influencer and you talk about health wellness fitness maybe you tie in like sustainability then those brands are going to find you like so much more attractive because they're going to know your entire audience is also interested in those things and have probably the same values as you. Um, So I think, again, becoming like an expert in content marketing and content creation. And then I think just not being discouraged if right away 
the brand partnerships and the money are rolling in. I find that if an influencer tries to build their audience with the sole intention of only making money, they will not make money because there's no passion behind the content they're creating. Um, they they don't realize or they don't think about like what value they're supposed to be giving their audience and all they're caring about is the paycheck. I think the paycheck should always be the end game, you know, and everything that you create eventually leads to that, but you're not going to build an audience if like you created an Instagram account today and you say, okay, within a month, I want a paid brand partnership. Yeah, I would say you're lucky if you get anything <laughs> like that. Um, so just, I think being realistic. Yeah. Um, and again, you will find that a, like someone like an Alex Earl, I don't think did partnerships for quite a long time. No, she was just getting ready, putting yes. her makeup on in her own mirror. Exactly. And so she built a very authentic, engaged audience because they didn't feel like they were being sold to. Right. And so, again, if your intention from the start is to just make money, then you're going to constantly be selling. Right. It was such an easy, seamless way to just add in a Tarte product. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, Charlotte Tailsbury, because she's already saying, okay, this is so-and-so in this color. She's She doesn't have to switch anything. Yep. She just you know, puts your peppers in your product and it looks so natural. People would never know, mm -hmm. but boom, there you have it. Charlotte Tilsbury just got an ad and Astasha Beverly Hills just got an ad and people are sold because they've been watching her do her makeup and they love the way she does her makeup. So yep. whatever she's using, I'm going to use. Absolutely. And that's really like, it's doesn't have to, it's not rocket science, no. you know, but it's just keeping those things in mind, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know when it feels right and natural to you and when it doesn't. Yep. And it's just being patient, realistic, but then really becoming an expert in content marketing. I This has been so interesting <laughs> for me. And I know that... People, some people may be listening and being like, oh, well, I have nothing to do with like influencer marketing or I'm not really crazy on socials. But I feel like so much of this ties into just how you conduct your you know, professional work ethic, who you are as a person, like, you know, it's, it's staying true to who you are at the end mm -hmm. of the day. And so I think that there's a, a larger overarching theme, which yep. is really helpful for everybody, whether this is their space or not. So thank you so much for coming on of and course. for sharing all your advice and telling us about your story. Um, before I let you go, I always ask everyone to give me one final piece of advice. It can be about being a business owner, it can be something pertaining to the industry as a woman in your 30s, whatever feels right. But most people have that one thing that they kind of lean on that they like to to remind others of. So if you have mm -hmm. one, I would say this is like, a, I think a very or hopefully very tangible piece of advice that someone can actually do today and see success in a year from now. Every single year in the month of December, I write a list of my goals and I literally write them down. I create a PowerPoint deck um, and I some of them seem so outlandish and like that I would never, ever get there. But I put like pen to paper, I write them down and and then I put it away. And then every three months I go and I open up those goals. And honestly, 
it's crazy how many times I accomplish something without even like realizing that I'm like working towards it. And so then at the end of the year, I go and I pull those. Well, I also will use it as a reminder, like, oh, that was a goal I wanted to do in December. How do I work towards that right now? And every single year, like clockwork, I go back to that original list and I am mind blown. I'm like, oh my gosh, last December, I thought that none of this was attainable. And I just checked off every single thing and it helps so much with imposter syndrome. It shows like growth professionally and uh, and personally. And it kind of like excites you about then creating your goals for the next year. And so that I started doing that about four years ago. And that's when I saw the most progress of my company was, again, writing those goals down, looking at them throughout the year, checking them off. And at the end of the year, seeing how much I had grown, because I don't think I would have realized how much I had grown if I hadn't documented where I wanted to be a year prior. Like I laugh when I look at my goal list from four to five years ago, I'm like, what? (laughs) That was unattainable then? And now I'm like, man, this is freaking awesome. And I think ahead like, okay, if my goals keep on getting bigger and bigger, like when I look back in another five years from now, I am going to be so shocked by just the growth. So yeah. I think that's my piece of advice is every single year, sit down for an hour, write all of your goals down, and every two to three months, go back, reference them, and you will be shocked by how much you can accomplish by just putting like pen to paper and thinking, okay, I, I'm going to manifest this, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it within a year. Okay, ma'am, astrology may not be your thing, but you have a little woo-woo in you because that is manifestation if I have ever seen it. I know. So we're not all that different, yes. my my friend, okay? I love that. And actually, you, you know, you reminded me a couple weeks ago, we had Melanie o- O'Neill on from um, Rustic Marlin, mm-hmm. and she mentioned in that too, that imposter syndrome, and she was talking about we don't stop and give ourselves credit enough. And I think that, even hearing it this way, it's similar but different in the sense that like, because we don't stop, there's no um, baseline to check back to. And so you can make these little accomplishments and they don't feel as significant unless you have that to be like, okay, wait, I wanted this and I was supposed to get here and I did. So it holds you accountable. It doesn't let your your mind start to let that imposter syndrome stick in, you know, and I think it also, there's something really to be said about putting things out there in the universe because I believe it hears you and our subconscious minds, whether Mm -hmm. you are thinking about it actively each day or not, having done that activity and taken the time, your body keeps score of that and and it keeps that in mind and it's sort of in you, whether you realize it or not. Absolutely. That's Fantastic advice. One more time, let's run through the socials. We are Wave Collective. Yep, we are Wave Collective, uh, The Golden Cod, and Robin Mangano. Robin with two Bs. Perfect. Thank you so much, Robin. And thank you, guys. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye.